Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What's gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Private authorities' influence on governing global networks is quickly becoming a key element in the field of international relations. As someone born during the age of globalization and having watched corporate giants in just a few decades fundamentally change the way consumers acquire goods and services, I have many questions about the way these players are disrupting traditional governance structures and the long-term impact that they will have on the way we analyze global and domestic power dynamics. Luckily, Virginia Hoffler, one of the foremost academics on private authority, agreed to speak with us on this topic, bringing with her years of experience pushing the field of IR to recognize the importance of private authority on the world stage. Either we need better national regulation or, hey, look, national regulation alone just is not capable or able to really rein in a lot of the corporations. But of course, the other part of it is that we you know, do we have the political will to even try? This is Imperfect Utopia or Bust, Global Governance Futures. Virginia Hoffler is Associate Professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland College Park. Her research focuses on the changing nature of governance in the global political economy, especially the role of transnational corporations and corporate social responsibility. She has presented her work at conferences, workshops, and at talks in more than a dozen countries. We spoke with Virginia in December 2021. There you go. That's how we roll. All right. Yeah. So I suppose in the in the era of, say, big pharma, big tech, big oil, it's really quite hard to believe that there was a time when, when, when global private actors, the big corporations, weren't considered consequential to understanding world politics. And your book, Private Authority and International Affairs, really put private corporations, private actors on the map as consequential global actors. So I think we'd really like to understand, you know, what is your assessment of how international relations has accommodated private authority in its conceptual, in its theoretical toolkit in the, the two decades since? It's a big question. Um, I, I want to first thank you all for inviting me to do this podcast. Um, I know who's you've had on other episodes, and I'm very flattered to be in such good company with such thoughtful and knowledgeable people. When it comes to incorporating private authority into international relations over the last 20 years, I do think you have to know what it was like when we first started and, and ended up with that book. Um, I was doing research for my dissertation on how corporate standards, rules, and norms shape the possibilities for government policy at the global level. Um, The only other uh, sort of scholars looking at corporations at that time were, one, dependency theorists um, looking at not corporations, but sort of the capitalist class. Um, And there was some analysis of corporations as corporations in it, but that wasn't really their focus. Um, Two, hegemonic stability theory. Um, 
people such as Gilpin and to a lesser extent, uh, Krasner, who saw multinational corporations simply as instruments of government, government power. And then, of course, there was Susan Strange, a keen critic of corporate power, but not from either of those perspectives. And so I was trying to figure out how to speak to the larger international relations field, but not through either of those lenses, really, and, and trying to figure out how to fit what I was interested in into the field. So I presented some of my early work as a graduate student at uh, a conference, and Tony Porter comes up and says, I'd like to introduce myself. You're the only other person doing this kind of work. And so we applied for and got a grant to do a workshop, brought in Claire Cutler, and then cast around for anyone who was doing anything in international relations on corporations. And together, we spent like a full day of intensive dis discussion trying to figure out a framework. And initially, we actually were talking within the framework of, of regime theory and trying to develop uh, the concept of a private regime. Um, we then expanded it later on to private authority, but a lot of our private regime approach was trying to speak to mainstream international relations, especially in, in the United States. Um, and it was a struggle. There, there weren't any real frameworks at that time that we could rely on. Um, we had a great time uh, uh, talking in the in this this small workshop, and then later we had a bigger uh, conference to which we invited Susan Susan Strange and of course uh, uh, other more senior people. Um, I have to tell you, Susan Sell, who I know was on an earlier podcast of yours, told me afterwards that this was the workshop that finally gave her a home in international relations because she was working on intellectual property rights and it just didn't fit anywhere. Um, so it was through that concept of private authority and our discussion of it in international affairs that we made a lot of what was going on in world politics visible to the field. Prior to that, then I think it wasn't. I think today, 20 years later, it is visible. Private authority, private governance, uh, self-regulation, private law, it's called a lot of different things, but it is definitely accepted as an element of international relations, clearly evolved in, an, in a lot of different directions. Um, but I would say there's more acceptance at, uh, of looking at corporations as important actors in world affairs and uh, global governance, but I don't think it's part of the canon yet. I would love to do a, an analysis of syllabi, graduate syllabi um, in international relations, international political economy, and international organizations to see how much of it actually gets into what we train our graduate students on, because I think that's that indicates what is considered to be important. So I think it's still considered to be, to some degree, a certain corner of the field, but certainly not central. Um, so it's accepted, but not adopted in a lot of ways. I think, I think some of the work that Abbott and Snyder are doing, trying to look at different relationships among actors, 
is in a sense trying to translate a lot of this for a larger international relations audience in terms they understand. Um, but I think there's still a lot of resistance. Uh, I have worked with Debbie Avant uh, at the University of Dem Denver on private authority in security affairs. And there is still a lot of resistance. So in the security studies corner of international relations, which is viewed by most as not the corner, but the center of international relations, I think it's uh, looking at private actors is still not really um, widely accepted. Yeah, thanks, Virginia. That's really helpful. And I, I think we're going to drill down a bit here and maybe geek out a little. But I'll just point out, I, I think last time I checked, it was, was it Amazon who's running the technical infrastructure for the Pentagon? <laughs> Perhaps the security specialists want to be paying a bit of attention to, to big tech there. Um, but I was, I was very curious to ask, what was it like to work with or to engage with Susan Strange at the workshop in 1999 or thereabouts? I mean, Susan Strange has quite a formidable reputation. Obviously, she wrote the, the very provocative article in 1982, Cave Dragons, which is quite a devastating critique of re regime theory at the very early stages of regime theory. So how was that? How was that experience? Susan Strange was always really supportive of this work and um, of me personally. Um, and I believe it's because she she talked about my work approvingly in her book on the retreat of the state. Um, I think that was critical to my getting uh, tenure at the University of Maryland um, that I could point to that. But in terms of working with her, she was just um you know, she, she was fun to work with because she had a very, um, not cynical, but a, a really good critical analytical eye and always wanted to bring things down to sort of what's going on in the real world. What are we really seeing? So she wasn't someone who put a lot of stock in theorizing when it comes right down to it. And the workshop included a lot of people who were much more theoretical than I am, um, and it created a very nice tension. Um, I do have to say, though, that one of my favorite um, memories of Susan Strange is not from our workshop or a conference where we had her speak. Um, it was from just a regular, I think, um, International Studies Association conference, and she comes in and sits down at a panel and and takes a swig of beer, and we're all, and it's in the morning because she, had a, uh, you know, it, the time difference for her it was the afternoon, and just as a junior person, seeing a senior person like her sit down at a major professional conference and and um, uh, sit there with a beer in her hand. <laughs> Gave me a whole different view of the senior people in my field. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's how that's how they used to roll, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, again, putting it sort of in in its historical sweep, I was looking earlier at the the market capitalization of Microsoft, and in 1999, their annual market cap market cap was 583 billion dollars, which was a lot of money in 1999. But today, it's well over one trillion dollars, which is almost the same as uh, the entire GDP of Russia. Uh, so. Uh, what I'm curious to ask, and perhaps this is a bit of a theoretical question, but to tie it to that sort of real world evolution, say power symmetry, 
to what extent, through engaging with regime theorists, with institutionalists, did you come to the realisation or to what extent did you feel that it was challenging to transfer those tools that have been used to explore cooperation among states to private actors, particularly very large, powerful private actors. I mean, can we expect business to be responsive in the same way as states to efforts to rein in free riding, for example, um, particularly given perhaps that their motive is, is fundamentally profit-driven as opposed to some broad notion of the public good? And I, I I would relate this also to what we're seeing now in the climate change space with scholars like Jessica Green coming forward and saying, look, you know, political science has been caught sleeping at the wheel here. We need to pay much more attention to, to obstructionism, the oversized impact of, of corporate obstructionists. So I'd, I'd be curious just to get your thoughts on that and how that debate has kind of evolved in your own mind. Well, I've become a lot more interested in issues of corporate concentration where Particular markets are dominated by just four companies, um, which has now become common across a lot of different markets uh, or market segments. And to the degree you have that kind of power concentration, economic power concentration, I think it does uh, create a lot of challenges for governance. And uh, I think we are beginning to see a lot more interest in uh, competition policy, uh, or in the U.S., we call it antitrust enforcement, um, because these companies are able to get around uh, a lot of regulations. And I have to say, you know, a lot of people, when I start out, they, they kind of poo-pooed my attention to corporate social responsibility and industry self-regulation. Um, and... Uh, a lot of my response was we either we need better national regulation or, hey, look, national regulation alone just is not capable or able to really rein in a lot of the corporations. But, of course, the other part of it is that we, you know, do we have the political will to even try? And and so in some ways, um, I think regime theory um, doesn't. I mean, it captures some of the dynamics of, of standard setting and, and sort of um, norms develop development around the private sector. But it, it, I think so far, um, we haven't really grappled with corporate concentration sufficiently in terms of our um, analysis of global governance, if that makes sense. Picking up on these gaps in, in, in regime theory, I was really struck going back a little bit by you saying that there's resistance to include private authority in mainstream academic curriculum and IR. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether that's due to the fact that we are very entrenched on, in understanding things through a regime theory lens and that um, investigating private authority kind of pulls back the veil slightly on how little democracy actually influences the way that we live. Um, I wanted to touch on that a little bit and whether or not, you know, your work on transparency, I know you've worked on transparency in the extractive industry, for example, makes um, sort of investigating private authority more palatable to academic circles. Well, I th I'd say a couple of things. What, one is that in some ways, regime theory itself has fallen out of favor. Um, and so it is not 
really the framework that a lot of people are working from right now. Um, it's private authority has become part of this larger move to talking about global governance, um, which includes both inner, you know, traditional IOs and then these alternative forms, including public-private partnerships and multi-stakeholder institutions. So the actual institutional approaches um, that incorporate private incorporate private actors um, have kind of evolved and um, aren't always uh, viewed through the lens of either private regimes or private authority, frankly. Um, in terms of why there's been resistance, I mean, I think it could be, I mean, I can speculate on a number of things. Um, one is, as I pointed out, a lot of people uh, see the core of international relations as being about uh, states and security and the danger of, of great power war. And anything that is not about war is simply not as important. And I've heard a number of IR theorists say that. Now, that isn't necessarily as common today as it would have been 20 years ago. But that still is the attitude of many of the prominent people in international relations. I think another thing, though, is that the field itself has become very fragmented. And so there isn't necessarily a common conversation. And so we have these different arenas in which People work, and I will I will uh, bring up environmental politics as one of them. Major international relations journals do not publish uh, articles on global environmental politics. Instead, we had to uh, launch an entirely other journal, the Global Environmental Politics Journal, and a few others to capture that um, part of the field. Uh, so. It's kind of not surprising that not everyone uh, incorporates private authority into what they see as the center of the field, because the center doesn't really exist in the same way today as it did 20 years ago. I don't know if I answered your question fully. Oh, and you asked about transparency. Um, so, so a couple things about transparency. Um, one is how is it, I'm not sure everyone understands how it's supposed to work. Um, it's, it's not just asking corporations or corporations voluntarily reporting on their operations and, oh, if we report, we're going to try to make sure we report better, better behavior, right? And yes, that can happen in some cases with corporations that um, value their reputation. But really what you need for transparency to make any difference at all is that the reporting is audited by some third party. Uh, there's some public way of conveying this. And there's an audience, an audience that mobilizes to hold the corporation accountable. And that can be consumers choosing what to buy, citizens in terms of their um, policy preferences, and governments, regulators actually holding companies accountable. So transparency alone is not what you're looking for. It's this entire sort of institutionalization of transparency. Um, so yeah, lots of corporations publish reports. I think 
What makes a difference is if they're reporting as part of a larger set of actual regulations. And some of this is no longer voluntary. It is part of government laws that uh, actually have costly consequences. If you don't report um, and if the reporting um, actually reveals uh, that you're not living up to certain standards. I don't know if that answered all your question. It did. Thank you. Hi, Virginia. Thank you for what you've said so far. I just wondered if we could circle back. I'm sure we'll end back up with transparency, but I just wanted to talk a bit more about Susan Strange and her critique of regime theory. One of the the main critiques, as far as I understood it, was that it was state-centric. And thinking about general IR scholarship, I think we mostly have a, a good handle of how power works with, with the state and state-centric models. But I was wondering what the kind of the average listener might need to update their models when thinking about it in relation to private authority and its relation to power? That's a big question. Um, because you're asking me to, I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which different theorists and different scholars have incorporated transnational corporations or private authority into their um, particular analyses. Um, and I think if I was starting out again and, and trying to think about how to do this, there's a couple different ways to think, I think. Um, one is a very traditional bargaining framework, uh, which is essentially what Stop, uh, uh, John Stopford and Susan Strange put forward, that the bargaining that is going on in world politics today is not just between governments, but between governments and corporations, and sometimes, you know, two governments and corporations. And that that still is a powerful way to analyze um, the, the power and influence of corporations in specific states, but also in a global context when it comes to global governance. And so that is one framework that I think is still um, uh, very useful. Um, in thinking about it through the lens of sort of institutionalization and, and private regimes, I think the global governance label um, now incorporates such a wide variety of relationships. And I think the abbott Snydel work sort of gives you a starting point in terms of thinking about how different actors relate to each other. Um, I think to me, some of the most interesting work uh, today actually is the analysis of governance through global supply chains and um, the the different power, the differential power of corporations within those supply chains and the, the power and position of different uh, host and home governments. And here I point to a lot of the work of people like uh, Janina Grabs and Hamish Vandervan and Geneva LeBaron, um, the sociologist Timothy Bartley. They're all looking at different aspects of governance within supply chains. And I think that's really interesting right now. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't know what else to say. There's like either I could say a lot or just stop right there. Now, that's a really useful kind of starting point that hopefully viewers and listeners can kind of go off. And then we might pick up some of those threads uh, later on in the podcast. But I, that, that was exactly 
uh, what I was hoping for, a kind of starter toolkit to get us into thinking about power in that way. So thank you. Yeah, I've been rereading some of the earlier work by James Rosenau and Robert Cox. And James Rosenau did say early on that uh, it's very hard to actually find a fundamental organizing principle to sort of hinge the whole of global global the global order around. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have a very rich, messy, complex landscape and we have to start somewhere. Yeah. I think it's yeah. kind of how you you set up your response there to Sam, which I think was very helpful. The other issue I think which comes to mind is if private power does need to be included within our understanding of how the world hangs together, to use John Ruggie's famous phrase. Do we focus on the role of private power and authority in terms of ordering political relations above the nation state? Or do we think about private power and authority in terms of questions around justice and inequality and the relationship between order and justice? Um, So we can think of order as a precondition to governance but we might also think of in relationship between justice and order in the sense of that justice order may be unstable, may not endure. And I make it more concrete, perhaps. So you were involved in the 1995 volume, I think it was, with, is it Rittberger on regime theory, with really all of the great and good of regime theory in that, of that era. Um, many of those names I recognize. Some of them are still writing. Uh, you were one of only two women in that list of authors on that volume. And as far as I can tell, all, the, all of those authors were from the global north, many of them American, a few British, a few Europeans. Um, so to what extent do you feel that, you know, focusing on private power, private authority within that context brings into view some of those issues, such as the experience of the marginalised, the experience of those who perhaps aren't part of the conversation. And that seems also something which Susan Strange was keen to, to just sort of you know, invigorate into the discussion. Uh, so that experience was amazing. So uh, just to give you a little story of, of how that came about, that I was part of that, um, I what the absolutely first time I publicly presented my work at a conference. It was at a panel that Volker Rittberger was on. And at the end of the panel, he leans over to me and says, I'll be in touch. I was a little terrified and disturbed that this very tall German man was saying I would be in touch. But what I got was an invitation to this conference at the University of Tübingen with all of the people that I was studying and citing as a graduate student. Uh, And I believe I may have, I guess I wasn't still a graduate student. I'd just gotten a job at the University of Maryland. And uh, needless to say, I was terrified. Um, So I was hanging out in this um, uh, lovely city with all the famous international relations names in both the U.S. and Europe. Um, And I have fond memories of Susan Strange, who was very encouraging and supportive. But my work was characterized at the time as, oh, so you think Milton Friedman was right. 
that the private sector can and should be in charge. And I was horrified. Um, <laughs> but Susan Strange was there to take it seriously. And I have to give credit to Bob Cohen, who, um, uh, of course, was very, very prominent in American international political economy at the time and still is. Um, and he actually took the time to sit down to lunch with me and to, to talk about it. So just as an experience as a very junior person, um, it was, um, um, you know, it, it was kind of odd. I was very conscious of the fact that I was very junior. And I have to say to your question about I was only two women there. I don't actually remember that. Uh, what I remember is that I was junior because it was so normal for there to be very few women in these kind of events um, and that Susan Strange would be one of them. So in that sense, it was um, not so, um, you know, the, the gendered aspect of it wasn't as, as striking to me as the junior senior dynamic. Um, and, and now I went off on the gender piece and I know you asked a different question in addition to that. Yeah. The, the other piece was related to, I suppose, uh, the question of, of justice and inequality and the extent to which regime mm -hmm. theory kind of brackets out those questions. And indeed, something that we might, you know, some some critical voices suggest that institutional theory more generally tends to treat justice, normative concerns as kind of sand in the gears, best not to go there because it just complicates it complicates the, well, uh, the agreement process. I guess I hadn't thought of it in the context of an institutionalist approach or regime theory. Um, when it comes to questions of justice, I would say that the field of international relations more broadly has missed the boat. And um, when I look at where the field should be going, um, I, I, I think of things like we need to bring gender in and feminist theory. We need to bl bring uh, racism in and postcolonial approaches. Um, and just from my own interests and one that I know you are interested in also, environment, climate change. These are three areas where international relations as a field has not really incorporated some of those most important and vital dynamics in world affairs. And um, so I wouldn't say it's just about regime theory or just about institutional approaches or even global governance. Um, and I think global governance actually has been trying to incorporate a lot more of that than maybe other areas of international relations have done. In terms of sort of how prevalent, I guess, private power is in our day-to-day -day lives, um, in terms of, I guess, we're all, you know, citizens of either Apple or I don't know, Android or whatever. Um, sort of thinking, where do we go from here? Do you think there's a way to imp maybe impose a more formalized participation um, on private power to sort of recognize the role that they play in deciding things and in impacting uh, people's lives? Sort of almost like, almost like, d d uh, sorry, 
Demo- oh my god, I can't pronounce that word. Democrat. Oh my god. <laughs> imposing more of a democracy sort of system on private power um, and sort of making it more participational um, from like a consumer's perspective or like a citizen perspective? Um, or is that kind of just a reductionist and misguided view of, I guess my the essence of it is there's no way to do away with private power or private authority. Do we bring it further into the fold more formally as a way of managing it? Or is that something that's just not going to happen? I feel like that was, sorry, that was, I got really stuck on no, variations of democracy there. I think what, what you are bringing up are some really important questions about the kind of capitalism we have today. This, this corporate capitalism based on uh, very large corporations and concentrated markets. And, you know, the, the system seems to be designed to create billionaires and favor corporations, right? So, what the question about justice and what your question about democracy um, in our sort of at our personal levels is raising are basically questions about whether we can reform the system or does it need radical restructuring? And I, I tend to be more of a reformer than a radical restructuring person. And yet I'm, as I see the way things are going, I am, sort of leaning a little more in the radical way. Um, they say as people get older, they, they get more conservative. And I think that's not true. <laughs> um, so at a more sort of reformist level, if you think of democracy, personal sort of how these corporations impact our lives, their private power, and what is our role in making a more democratic system. I mean, I do, I teach um, uh, undergraduate courses where I tell students, um, your consumer choices can influence corporations, right? If they are aggregated. And we do see a lot of young people today being less consumerist, which is going to have, which could potentially have a really big impact on the way in which corporations relate to their, um, their markets. Um, but I don't think that's enough. And that's what I tell them, that that consumer approaches are limited. I think um, thinking of democracy, I think some of these multi-stakeholder approaches where you get negotiations with representatives from a wide variety of of places in society, especially in local places, local communities, they do make a difference in how corporations um, behave and respond. There was very interesting work done by Tricia Olson at the University of Denver, comparing different major mining companies in, I believe it was Peru. And the corporation that did more community engagement was very different from the company that did not. And it made a huge, a significant difference in the lives of those local people. Um, again, it's not, it, it's not enough, but it is some restraint or influence on corporate behavior. But I think ultimately what we want is, if you're concerned about private power, you should be running for office. You should be voting. You should be doing things to make sure that your democracy, my democracy, which is in trouble, um, that it is strengthened. 
to uh, encourage more voice from citizenry. Um, so, you know, I don't know that I have a really good answer, except to say that um, asking these questions leads you to think about alternative futures. And I think it's really important for us to think about what an alternative to a corporate-led capitalism would look like. And, um, and, and that does lead to thinking about democracy um, at the level you were talking about, like our individual lives. Like, where is our voice in this and where does accountability lie? Um, and, you know, I think, I think that kind of thinking, I'm seeing more and more um, people thinking about that and writing really important and interesting books. Um, uh, even economists who generally don't like to think about these things, they're coming out with, and I should note, mostly women economists are coming out with really interesting ways to rethink the role of the private sector and um, the direction of capitalism. Thank you very much for making sense of my question. Um, I kind of wanted to follow up and sort of when you said alternative futures, um, how do you think COVID has sort of maybe precipitated thinking about alternative futures? Because I guess in a way right now we're living in an alternate future like that none of us could have pictured. It's not like what any of us had, had planned. Um, and do you think it's been pushing us to reconsider more drastically, more quickly, what we want a future to look like and how to enact it, um, especially in terms of private power, because I guess you sort of, and also when you mentioned the local, you know, you have to look at a local scale and how reliant are we on private authority and how reliant is our are our governments on private authority to make things happen? I mean, in the UK and all the testing and the whatnot and even all over the world, the vaccines, there's it kind of put that dependence under the microscope and how do you think that that's impacted perhaps um, how we envision the future? You guys ask tough, big questions. Um, uh, so a couple things. Um, one, the role of government in the response to COVID has really smashed a lot of the old uh, uh, sort of neoliberal free market approaches. I think more and more people will be more accepting of government role, uh, of the government role in things like the economy and our health. Um, but I also think there's a backlash and we see that in a lot of places. And instead of looking for alternative futures, there's a lot of people looking to the past and they're looking to the past in ways that are, um, I think, um, uh, uh, not productive, let us put it that way. So a lot of nationalism, protectionism, um, anti-globalization and racism, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that, that, you know, bring them, you know, put us back in the 1950s, uh, uh, that kind of uh, uh, approach. So I think for some people, COVID has made them want to cling more closely to um, what looks to them like an idyllic past. But I do think there's a lot of people who are thinking about alternative futures. And we see that in, I think, 
the way in which a lot of, I will go back to a comment I made a minute ago, um, people are rethinking their role as a consumer and how much they need to own. And that had already started prior to COVID. Um, a lot of young people, for instance, don't need to own things. You know, look at music streaming, video streaming. They don't need to own things anymore. Um, and I think more of that attitude um, has has permeated a wider slice of society than I would have ever expected. And that kind of thing does push you towards thinking about alternative futures. I think also the fact that COVID happened in a year in which we had uh, um, so many climate related disasters. Um, so that I think pe more people may be starting to move to the, you know, move through the energy transition. And we see that happening. The energy transition is happening. And that, that is an alternative future, one in which we don't necessarily rely on the big oil companies and gas companies anymore, um, which would be huge, huge. And these companies know it. Um, so they are fighting it to them now. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can think about the impact of COVID on how we look forward to the future. And, and as I said, I think... Um, a, a bigger acceptance of a government role, um, uh, I think, is, is something that will carry forward from this. I think despite the missteps by the international organizations like the World Health Organization, um, a lot of good came out of the international cooperation that led to the vaccine. Of course, now we have the vaccine distribution disaster, but I think that's going to be fixed. And so I don't think they were necessarily... Um, deeply harmed by this. But I do think there is this tension between people who want to go backwards and people who want to go forwards uh, and think about alternatives. In terms of private power, I think that my concern about corporate concentration is partly reflecting um, the fact that more and more other people are concerned about it. And it is one of the few areas in which, in my country, Republicans and Democrats both are worried and fearful of corporate domination um, or corporate power. Uh, and uh, it might be an area in which, uh, despite everything, you could find some agreement. Thank you so much for everything you shared. That's a lot to unpack. Um, I suppose I'd like to speak a little bit about, um, about transnational business practices and what you believe the role of the consumer is on those. Um, we haven't really spoken a lot about about the intersection between uh, domestic politics and uh, private authority. So I suppose my my question is: um, Are our current domestic state regulators fit for purpose in a sort of controlling private authority? And uh, does the consumer have an influence of that outside of the traditional democratic structure? I know you mentioned. Um, running for office as a way to change things. But uh, can, a, can a consumer really have influence transnationally, I suppose is my question. Well, I think most of us know, not necessarily. I, I, I think as a consumer, we can shape demand and demand drives 
corporate responses in terms of what they see as profitable. So if there are larger trends, not you individually as a consumer, but larger trends among consumers, you will see a change. Um, and I think one of the areas where you see um, some of this connection between corporate practices in the transnational arena and cons the consumer role is the way in which a lot of consumers are becoming very activist when it comes to what's happening at the other end of a global supply chain. Like what, you know, where does my coffee come from? You know, how was my t-shirt made and by whom and under what conditions? And that has led to increasing um, uh, regulation or transparency within global supply chains. And, um, you know, again, it's it's not you as an individual consumer, but many of you um, uh, actually making purchases based on um, your perception of whether the company was, you know, there was no slavery involved in the making of your, your whatever you purchased. Um, that is having an influence on transnational business practices. Um, it's not enough. I think you're right that a lot of national governments have not done enough. Um, they're in this, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of developing countries have relatively weak regulations and weak enforcement, um, so that the transnational uh, governance through supply chains may be the only way to really um, build change on the ground by companies operating there. I don't know if that was entirely clear, but but I think the connection between consumers and um, what companies are doing today really is through those gl global supply chains um, and and your response to knowledge and information about what's happening. And where do you feel domestic state regulation could go from, from here? So from more of a, a state-centered perspective um, in terms of uh, uh, regulating transnational business practices? So I think there's a couple of really interesting things happening. Um, one is in talking about uh, transparency and global supply chains and things like that. Um, this is not all voluntary, corporate-led, or even multi-stakeholder anymore. It's governments actually passing laws requiring companies to report and to know what is happening in their supply chains. And you have um, uh, you know, issues of conflict minerals uh, in the United States and a couple other countries. You have the European Union considering due diligence legislation. Um, you have um, UK modern slavery law. All of these are ways to think about um, uh, sort of regulating corporations and its regulations. It's states passing laws or the European Union passing actual laws that have more consequences than the more voluntary things. So I think that's one thing that we see happening that has potential to really make an impact. I've been reading lately about the European Union deforestation law, which is being touted as potentially transformative. Um, 
I think the other thing that is kind of surprising, um, but the efforts of uh, John Ruggie, who recently passed away, sadly, uh, his efforts with regard to business and human rights are bearing fruit. Uh, it looks like there may actually be the successful negotiation of law on the responsibilities of business with regard to human rights. And that is something that people have been trying to get for decades, decades. And uh, now we see the possibility of it actually coming to pass. Um, so uh, I'm a little bit optimistic on those things. Mm, yeah, thanks, Virginia. Uh, so <laughs> perhaps the telescope out again, as you say, we do kind of like the big questions on, on this podcast. Uh, I suppose so, sort of the something which is animating this conversation is, is the question of how do we actually instigate change? Does change come from the small actions, the sort of myriad multiple accumulation of individual actions, or does it come from some kind of high point of systemic uh, leverage? Are we talking about incremental change? Are we talking about system transformation? And I was, you know, I was struck by some of this conversation sort of relating that to the work of people like Donetta Meadows, who, when she looked at the, the problems which we confront as a civilization, looked to the highest point of leverage as the, the logic which, which drives the evolution of the system. And so if we look at the economic system, the, the logic driving the evolution of the system from her stand, uh, point of view was growth. And that actually, if we can if we can deal with growth, we solve a lot of the pro a lot of the the other problems because they are actually symptoms of the underlying fundamental problem, this sort of inexorable drive towards growth. And of course, we need to be clear about what we mean by growth. I think she understood it as sort of you know the, the growth produced by extractive industrial economies that then create exponential waste, that then create exponential non-renewable resource depletion. So we have this very interesting debate now on growth. Are you agnostic on growth? Are you are you into degrowth? I mean, where do you stand on growth? Well, it's really interesting you raise this because it's sort of next on my list of projects is to uh, uh, read all the degrowth literature because I think it's really fascinating the way people are are talking about this and more and more people are are rethinking what we mean when we say growth, but more importantly, whether growth is really our aim or is our aim certain standards of living, which may or may not be related to having a growth-oriented economy, or if it's possible to have growth without all of the resource depletion um, that uh, Meadows was concerned about. Um, and many other people, mind you. Um, so I, I, you know, I have a stack of books. <laughs> I have a, I have many tabs open on my on my uh, web browser, and and um, many things on my desktop that I plan to read. So I, I don't think I have a clear understanding of what people mean when they talk about degrowth. Um, and I'm not sure I have. Uh, a clear idea of my own position on that yet. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, and my what I lean towards is is simply that we must find a different way to produce the goods and services that make life 
comfortable and worth living and to do it in a way that um, um, sort of overcomes the big problem of inequality that I think is is um, one of the biggest challenges for the future. Um, but I don't know how that happens. You know, I think I think I can say that and say that I'd love to have that. But how we get there, how it works, that I'm less clear on. Well, we'll have to get you back on the podcast when you crack that that nut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a related question and also a challenging one. I mean, I, I'm sure you're familiar with some of this emerging research in the IP space by people like Thomas Oatley, who are bringing a complex systems approach to questions of political economy. And, you know, I, I find that some of that work really fasc fascinating. I, I flirted myself a little bit with complexity science and existential risk. And it is kind of a curiosity for me as to how we've arrived at a point where we do sort of bracket out and, and silo, say, IPE or security from other system dynamics. And in particular, you know, biophysical systems, planetary boundaries, the systems within which all of the human systems are ultimately the, the embedded and, and dependent. And I was just curious, I mean, is that on your radar? Do you, why do you think that, that uh, say, international relations or social sciences more broadly have tended to be quite demarcated from, say, the insights of natural science? And in climate change, obviously, this becomes really acute because the climate scientists come to our workshops and they go, hang on a minute, like the situation's really urgent. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, I mean, I, I find I, I mean, I, I'm um, interested in this and and, you know, puzzles over it. And I think it's very clear that that um, um, it's not just that social sciences have been siloed from natural sciences, but that each and every scientific field has become very siloed, to use that uh, uh, made up word. Um, and so it's very difficult to to talk to each other and to find a common language and a common framework. And, and so it, it has been very challenging, but we see a lot uh, climate change is a really interesting area where, where there is so much more contact between natural and social sciences than you find in any other area of international affairs. Um, so I think that um, we are seeing a lot more of those conversations and a recognition of, of um, you know, our, our common concerns. Um, and, you know, I hope we see more of that across different arenas. I think um, the COVID, the pandemic is bringing health sciences and, and international relations more together than in the past. That um, a lot of uh, medical or health issues were studied more from sort of a political economy perspective. And now I think we're sort of incorporating more of this global, uh, you know, the, the challenges of global cooperation and the role of corporations and a lot of other things that bring together, you know, epidemiology with with political science. So um, I, I think you're right that that uh, social science has not incorporated enough of the natural sciences. And I don't think it's new for me to say that. I think um, people have been saying this for decades. If you look at some of the people who've written on sort of science and technology in a global context, you know, they have been making this complaint for a long time. 
Um, and it didn't necessarily go anywhere because we have trouble training ourselves in everything in international relations to then go out and learn another field is, is too much. And it's hard for us to converse with people who are trained entirely in a different field. Yeah, we're trying to have those conversations or at least begin to spark those conversations here. So, yeah, thanks for exploring yeah, that with yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. I could tell you were speaking from experience. Virginia, I wondered if we could, I was struck by something that I think either Zoe or Jess said at the start about being a citizen of Amazon or a citizen of Google. Um, now in, in 2021, there are many kind of figureheads. We've got you know Elon Musk, Bill Gates, these big private actors who almost have a statesman-like quality to them. And they have, among certain people, a real support. Um, obviously, this, this isn't new, that does feel new. There, there was kind of Andrew Carnegie way back in the you know, late, late uh, 1800s, a big kind of philanthropist businessman. So it's, it's not a new concept, but I was wondering if there's, is it that, that when there's a decrease in belief in the state or in the power of government, that there's an increase in the, the belief in a new kind of private actor solution, you know, the techno-optimist solution to things? Um, or can they both, can we have the, the Bill Gates and the very strong, healthy state actors working simultaneously? Or do, do they kind of seesaw in a way? I would actually reverse some of the causality you put put into that question. Um, you seem to say that um, because we've lost our faith in government, we have turned to wealthy people. And I think the opposite happened, that a lot of people started admiring and holding up as models entrepreneurs who become billionaires, um, some of whom become philanthropists and some do not, not all are statesmen. Um, and uh, I mean, Elon Musk is not a statesman. I mean, I'm sorry. I know he's on the cover of Time Magazine, Man of the Year, but no. Um, <laughs> um, Bill Gates a little more so because, you know, the Gates Foundation is the primary source of funding when it comes to a lot of medical and, and um, um, a lot of food issues, food and agriculture. So, um, but I think that part of the neoliberal era was about taking our faith in government and undermining it um, because we now admire these entrepreneurs. And this is particularly true in the United States. I don't know if it's as true in other countries, but in the United States, there is such a, uh, a hero worship of, um, you know, the, the tech giants and Silicon Valley and, you know, and everyone's um, is so admiring of them. Um, but I think it just reflects the, the deep inequalities of our current system. And um, for me, it, it's, you know, it's definitely not, I don't think we should be holding them up as, um, you know, the source of authority today. 
Um, they are they are authoritative about their own particular business, but not about the the public goods, not about citizenship, um, not about the things that we share as a people. Um, I clearly share nothing with Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk. Yeah, no, thank you, Virginia. That's a great, great kind of look at where we're at right now. And a good clarification as well. Good clarification. So thank you. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're rolling to a close. Uh, thank you so much for, for really joining us in tackling the question of alternative futures as well, which is always quite a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging kind of tightrope act in a way, you know, it's always a bit speculative, but it does strike me that private authority is one really powerful lens to think about future the future realities that we might be moving towards some of those attractive spaces in sort of complexity terms. If you've um, noticed, I don't know if you read science fiction, but many of the science fiction books looking at alternative futures, corporations run the world. Like, like they've already predicted that, you know, governments lose, corporations run the world. Actually, the week I teach cyber governance, I use William Gibson's 1984 classic Neuromancer, Neuromancer, where he defines cyberspace. And indeed, it was not a particularly utopian vision he laid out for the future, was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was absolutely point noted. Uh, I think also, though, what comes through in this conversation is that we're talking about many varieties of capitalism, many varieties of private authority. And obviously, it's going to look very different in different sort of regional, uh, domestic, cultural yeah, We didn't context. even touch on state corporations at all. That'll be for next time, I guess, when we get into the degrowth debate as well. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's fascinating because on one level, you can you can sort of think about, you know, is this going to be the, the much delayed triumph of Karl Polanyi's third movement? Yeah. Uh, the breakup of the big global monopolies, or is change going to come through, you know, myriad millions of small acts, the ingenuity of lawyers and engineers and maybe scholars? <laughs> uh, I mean, do you have any final reflections on where we're going? What will excite you most about global politics uh, with regard to private authority today? I, there's so many uh, areas that I'm interested in, and and I think you could tell I'm very interested in in uh, private authority and in the climate arena. Um, I am turning back to actually re, re reviewing and bringing forward some of my early research on on the insurance industry and and its influence on climate uh, uh, climate policy. Um, I'm interested in some of the digital uh, arena. And when I talk about global supply chains, um, I actually am looking at the way in which um, in the governance of global supply chains, some, um, some are adopting sort of blockchain technologies and smart contracts. And like, what does all this technology mean for governance? And I find that fascinating. And then, as I mentioned, I have a whole pile of degrowth type books that I want. I think that's it's really exciting to think about alternative futures. Great. Well, we look forward to picking up this conversation again, Virginia. But thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's been wonderful to have you here with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed uh, the way you made me think big. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning into Imperfect Utopias or Bust. 
global governance futures. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. And if you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. 